Gospels to Mark chapter 16. Be reading verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you'll join with me in prayer. God, I ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and now the preaching of your word. And I pray that you would build our faith in our resurrected Lord. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. This is the last sermon from the book of Mark that I'll be uh, preaching. Uh, Next week we're going to start a series in Galatians. But in saying that, you may be saying, well, what about Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? Well, I'm going to address that briefly this morning uh, to help you. Uh, I've put some extensive notes on the back of your bulletin, so you may want to look at that and follow along. The uh, first point you see is really a question. How did Mark end his gospel? The most reliable and early manuscripts... Uh, I'm sorry, the most reliable early manuscripts and, and other ancient witnesses do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Um, I want to spend just a couple of minutes uh, giving you an understanding of the process of the transmission of the text of the New Testament so you can understand why this is an important question and uh, how... Uh, in my thought processes, and frankly the thought processes of, um, of scholars uh, throughout the, the uh, ages have approached this text. Uh, obviously, when the New Testament was written, there were no uh, printing presses. Those weren't invented until uh, the 1500s. And so, obviously, also, there were no Xerox machines. So every book or every letter had to be hand-copied. We have no original copies of any of the New Testament books. We have no 
copied. We have we don't have the pieces of paper that the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John uh, wrote wrote on. We have copies of their manuscripts. And so what would happen back in these uh, back in these times is because people needed uh, books, because they needed uh, to disseminate the information, uh, it, just like in the movies, you'd have a room full of copyists and you would have a corrector up in front who would be leading the, the room of copyists and would also do the proofreading. He was a corrector. And they would write these copies. And so we have hundreds of copies, even though we don't have any originals. Uh, we have hundreds of copies and, um, and also fragments of copies that come to us from all of the New Testament books and they come to us from all over the world. We have a whole family of manuscripts from Alexandria, Egypt. We have another family of manuscripts from Asia Minor. We have another family of manuscripts um, from the uh, from the region of Judah. We have other manuscripts that come to us from uh, from Rome and other parts of Europe. And so they have all these manuscripts. And by comparing all these copies from all over the world, we have a very high degree of certainty that we have reliable copies of the New Testament books because you have a family of texts from Alexandria and they compare um, almost word from word for from copies in in um, in from Rome and then we have them and they were generated century after century and so we have all these copies now little mistakes will show up you know I can't even copy something I've written without making a mistake Uh, the bulletin attests to that from time to time Uh, but uh, those mistakes are easily recognized you have a hundred manuscripts that say one thing and you have one manuscript that says something different well it's easy to recognize that a mistake was made. It's easy to see the error. And very rarely we come upon places in the where copyists intentionally change change the text. We had this corrector that would oversee the copies and he would make notations if he saw that there were errors and if um, if they, if he saw an intentional correction, he would also note that. Uh, sometimes he would note it very strongly. Um, see, and these copyists thought, well, if I just change the wording a little bit, it'll just be a little bit more clear uh, to the people who are reading it. And most of these instances where this happened uh, have been dis- discarded centuries ago. Uh, it's funny, in one of these texts, we have a little note in the margin. In the Greek, it reads, Ama estaste kaikake, ases ton palion me metakoye. 
and what this means translated, and you, you know a couple of words, kake, unfortunately, the slang has continued through the ages. Um, it, it originally meant uh, worthless or evil or bad. And um, then polyon, from which we get paleontology, the study of ancient things. And so here's what this Greek, this little note in the margin reads. And this is a corrector writing the, this note. He says, fool and worthless person, can't you leave the old reading alone and not change it? And so he's, he's writing here and rebuking this copyist. Well, a couple of these uh, changes that um, were made slipped in to a family of text over in Asia Minor. It's called the Byzantine family of text. The problem is the Byzantine family of manuscripts, of Greek manuscripts, became the basis for the interpreters of the King James Version. And so in 1611, when they went through and translated the King James into English, they were using this family of texts that had um, a couple of these um, instances where the copyists decided to, to uh, make things clearer and they changed the Word of God. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 is the most famous of those examples. And the reason why this happens is the earliest and most reliable manuscripts end with verse 8. And that just doesn't seem right for a gospel, a gospel of good news to end on a note of fear. In verse 8 it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so you can see, if you were a copyist writing this down, this just doesn't make sense. And so there have been several attempts to add on an ending that makes sense. In fact, uh, you have in your under uh, point one B, there are four different types, four different endings that have been added on to try and make sense of this that the copyists that they found uh, in the manuscripts. Now, the people who do this for a living, the scholars who who do the textual criticism, they're not a very imaginative group of people. Um, so here's the names that they've given to these these endings for Mark 16 that have been added over the years. There's the short ending. There's the intermediate ending. There's the long ending, which is which is still in our Bibles that says that the, the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. So the, the, the long ending is verses 9 through 20. And then there's the long ending in expanded form. So like I said, they're not a very uh, creative group. But those are some of the ways that copyists through the centuries tried to make more sense of this abrupt ending in verse 8. The early manuscripts do not include these endings. In fact, as you read the Church Fathers, Tertullian, Origen, and others, they have no sense. They don't even mention these verses. They don't, in their commentaries, have any recognition that it was even there in the manuscripts that they were working with. So the early Church Fathers knew nothing of these verses. The style and the vocabulary are all very different. You can, you can pick up as you read Mark in the Greek, 
You could pick up his style. In fact, if you knew the word euthus, you could almost translate a quarter of Mark. The word euthus means immediately. And it seems like he uses that word euthus immediately like two times every verse. It's his way of moving the story along. And... uh, but you, you just get the sense in reading it in the Greek that the vocabulary, even the style, are very different here in these uh, in verses 9 through 16. And also, I'll point out in verses 16 and 17, if this was part of, of the original, um, then to express our faith, to show that we were believers in Jesus Christ, we'd be picking up uh, deadly snakes. We'd be some of the snake handlers from West Virginia. No, no, uh, no offense, Pam and others maybe who are from West Virginia. But uh, it says, and these signs, verse 17, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So, it is my best understanding that these verses are a later edition. I won't go to the mat on it but I don't feel comfortable enough because I have such a high view of Scripture. I don't feel comfortable preaching on these last several verses. And then I have a quote from Bruce Metzger, one of the uh, Greek authorities on the matter. He says, Thus we are left with the short ending, witnessed by the earliest Greek versional and patristic evidence. Both external and internal considerations lead one to conclude that the original text of the second gospel as known today, as, as known today closes at 16 verse 8 but Mark did not intend to conclude his gospel but did Mark intend to conclude his gospel with a melancholy statement that the women were afraid so that is Mark uh, 9 verses 16 or, or Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 I want to quickly go over the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, first of all, there's the, early, the empty tomb. The disciples, as we read about them in the text, as moving up to the cross, they were continually rebuked for their lack of faith. They deserted Jesus when he was arrested. And you get the sense that even an empty tomb would not have completely swayed them. Now it was enough for Mark seeing the empty tomb, seeing the grave clothes. I'm sorry, not Mark, but John, the Apostle John. It says in John that he believed when he saw that. But you get the sense that the others may have been more like um, like Thomas, doubting Thomas. Unless I put my hands in the nail prints and into his side, I won't believe. But here's the important evidence from the empty tomb. The Jewish authorities could have dispelled Christianity completely by simply producing a body. When the disciples started preaching that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, all that the Jewish authorities had to do was produce the dead body. They did not do it. They were not able to do it because our Lord Jesus Christ rose bodily from the tomb. 
Another strand of evidence are the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to many others. He appeared to over 500 over the next 40 days after his resurrection. And after appearing to the disciples... After spending time with him during this, uh, this period before he ascended into heaven, after this, the disciples have become, they've been transformed. After this, daily, they were threatened. They lived persecuted lives. Why did they do this? Because of the preaching of Christ. They were constantly under uh, the threat of execution, and they never wavered in their faith. None of them turned back. None of them stopped preaching. All of them were executed except for one. What was it that transformed these fearful, unbelieving disciples who all deserted Jesus on the night in which he was arrested? What transformed them into the powerhouses that changed the world? Well, there's only one thing that could have done this. They saw the risen Lord. They spent time with him. And so let me ask you this question. I heard this as a young Christian, and it made a powerful impact on me. I haven't forgotten it over all these years. Why would they be willing to suffer daily persecution and die a violent death for something that they knew to be a hoax? Why would they have done this? They knew for certain. They knew for certain whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. They preached the resurrection. They said they saw Jesus, and they gave their lives for it, and suffered daily for it. And they went out, and in the space of less than one generation. They transformed the world, and they transformed all subsequent history. And we are sitting here this morning because of their fearless preaching that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They were seized by the power of the resurrection, and they changed the world by the sheer force of their witness. A third strand of thought is this. Imagine if there were no resurrection. Imagine if Jesus indeed did not rise from the dead. As we read from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain. Think about that. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, where are any certainties here in this life? What is true? All meaning, all purpose in life evaporates if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. Not only that, we are still in our sins. Our guilt is still weighing on our shoulders. All of us in this room, I would dare to say have that one thing, probably those many things that just make us cringe when we think about it. 
things we did in years past, maybe things we did last week, it's cringes because we can't believe that we actually did it. How does the guilt get removed if there is no Redeemer to come and die for your sins? The weight of your guilt is still on you if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Well, let me ask you this. How can you have any hope that God will receive you into His presence if the guilt of your sin is still hanging on you because Jesus did not rise from the dead? You have no hope. The foundation for our relationship with God is that God will not count our sins against us. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Also, think about this. If there was no resurrection, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no sense of justice. There was this little girl up in Jacksonville. I'm sure you heard about it this week. That was abducted and they found her body in a landfill in Georgia. What if they don't catch the animal who did that? And I'm speaking figuratively. It was a human being who was acting like an animal. Where's the justice if he gets away with it? Or think about this. Some of you, I'm sure, heard the story two or three months ago. Uh, they've had this skull that they've always assumed was Hitler's skull because of the dental work. And they went and did a DNA test a few months back. Turns out the skull that they thought was Hitler's skull when he shot himself, you know, after Eva Braun, you know, took the... Um, took the uh, poison pill and then they went out and burned their body in front of the uh, bunker there in Berlin they've always assumed this was Hitler's skull found out that the DNA um, proves that it's actually a woman's skull (laughs) what happened to Hitler what if he finished out his days sipping margaritas down in Brazil where's the justice if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Also, think about this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, and I'm quoting Paul here, then there's no resurrection for you as well. It's an unthinkable thought. I can't act, I cannot for 100% prove that Jesus rose from the dead. There's an element of faith when you strip it all away. I spent years thinking about it. I didn't become a follower of Christ until I was 20. And I spent a lot of time afterwards, even after I became a follower of Christ, thinking about it. But I've got to say, the thought of Jesus not rising from the dead, that is a hateful thought to me. No justice, no truth, no meaning in life, no forgiveness of sins, no Savior who looks after me and takes care of me. We're running a little over. Let me go to the third point and I'll be brief. The results of the resurrection. 
First of all, Christ's resurrection will result in our future resurrection. This life is not all that there is. Those who have died in Christ will rise with Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. When He appears, everyone who died in Him will rise with Him. Christ's resurrection will result in our future resurrection. Secondly, Christ's resurrection resulted in our past resurrection. Romans chapter 6. If you read it closely, he's speaking not in the future tenses, but in the past tenses. He says that we died in Christ and we rose with Him in His resurrection. In some unexplainable way, we were in Christ. And when God judged Jesus, We were in Him. When He died, we died. When He rose, He purchased for us a new life. We weren't there physically. There was nothing we could do to help Him purchase our new life. He purchased it. And when we trust in Him, He gives us that new life that He secured 2,000 years ago on the cross. So our faith... Is not trying is is not exercised in God to make him appeased. Rather, our faith is where we took, where we take hold of what Christ did for us. Our salvation was purchased by Christ two thousand years ago on the cross. There's nothing we could do to help him purchase it. There's nothing we could ever do to help us to help him give us a new life. He did it. Our faith simply means reaching out and taking hold of Christ and all of his benefits for us. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection resulted in our redemption. And this is basically the same point said in a different way. He purchased our adoption. He purchased our justification. He purchased our sanctification. Jesus said without Him we can do nothing. He purchased our glorification. All those things were taken care of on the cross. Our redemption was finished then. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to deserve it. We simply come to the end of ourselves in our repentance and in our hatred for sin in our need for a Savior. We grab onto Jesus and say, Jesus, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. And He brings all those benefits from 2,000 years ago that He purchased on the cross and He gives them to us. And they are ours because we are in Him. So in conclusion, this is the point that I've wrestled with. I told Billy earlier this week, I said, Billy, if I could put it, I was wrestling with the thought, if I could just take the one thought and put it in one paragraph, and it was really difficult doing this. <laughs> um, but the, but that thought is that I've been wrestling with is Christ's resurrection is not just one isolated fact among other facts. There's all these facts out there. There's a lot of religious facts. And the resurrection is not just one among many. It is the fact. It has bearing on everything we do. 
It has bearing on everything we think. It has bearing on everything we value. Let me illustrate it. I lost my 401k when the stock market tanked. But Christ rose from the dead. I have an incurable disease. And I'm going to die soon. But Christ rose from the dead. I struggle with self-confidence. But Christ rose from the dead. I fear death. But Christ rose from the dead. Can you see how that one central thought is life-transforming? It's revolutionary. So for this sermon, for some, I hope and I trust that it is a call to praise and thanksgiving for what Christ has done for you in rising from the dead. To others, I hope that it is a call to renew your faith in God. I'm going to add one other thing here. I always get in trouble when I go away from my notes. I've been teaching in Sunday school, uh, the third through fifth grade. And I'm full of the sermon. And, but when I'm teaching the scripture to the kids, it seems like there's a lot of cross-pollinization. And this morning, the, uh, the uh, lesson was about... Um, about um, the uh, the kings of Israel and how for generations they had been wicked had turned away from the Lord they had even brought idols into the temple but yet the worship of God continued on and it struck me how the the resurrection for us can be like just one more thing that we do, one more thing that we believe. The Israelites were worshiping God and yet bowing down to the idols. They were worshiping God but not following God. And so under this point, a call to renew your faith, I want you to ask yourself this morning, what impact is the resurrection having on my life today? What impact is the resurrection having on what I value? What what impact is the resurrection of Christ having on what I do and what I say, what I think? And then to others, finally, it may be a call to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, if you've never trusted in Him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you loved us and that you sent Jesus as our Redeemer and that the grave could not hold him, that he took up his life again and he reigns now in glory. And he takes care of us because he is reigning in glory as been seated at your right hand as the King of the universe. God, to think that he might not have done that is indeed a hateful thought. Our lives fall apart. Our worldviews collapse. Our morals cease to exist. And 
We will not ourselves rise from the dead if Jesus did not rise. God, I ask that you would build up our faith in Jesus and help us to live not only as people who will experience the resurrection from the dead in Christ, but as people who believe that moment by moment that His resurrection shapes our lives. Help us by Your Spirit to trust in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. I pray in His name. Amen.